Hello and welcome to Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. I'm John J. Miller, Director of the Dow Journalism Program here at the college, joined today by President Larry Arn, President of our college, also a teacher here, and you've just given us the final lecture of the course on the Supreme Court. You also gave us the first lecture in this series on the Supreme Court, and back then when we recorded it, we didn't know who would win the 2016 presidential election. Now we know who did win. It's Donald Trump. He's going to have to appoint a Supreme Court justice, a bunch of other judges. How should President Trump go about picking these nominees? Uh, well, it's sublimely simple at the right level of generality. He should, he, he should pick people who believe in the rule of law and understand how the Constitution accomplishes that. Uh, the, the Constitution, especially for a judge, is a subject of obedience. That is to say, you have to do what it says. You take an oath to do what it says. And if you take an oath with the mental reservation so many have today, that what it says depends on what you think it says, then that's no oath at all. So they should understand that the Constitution of the United States, what is the supreme law of the land, was passed directly by the people, operates chiefly through its structure and general arrangements, which should be restored and preserved. And finally, its specific provisions are worthy of great respect. And that's the judge's job on the Supreme Court. Conservatives who voted for Trump uh, listed all kinds of reasons for doing so. But the one you heard over and over and over again was the Supreme Court. It's so important to have uh, conservative jurists on the Supreme Court. The Republicans, though, have a so-so record when it comes to nominating justices of the Supreme Court from a conservative constitutionalist standpoint. You get some great ones like Scalia and Thomas and Alito and so on, but we also get figures like Kennedy, who you criticize in your lecture this week, and Souter and so on. It seems like the Democrats never make a mistake. They always get the progressives they want. But Republicans seem to have a little more difficulty with this. Why is that? And how can President Trump avoid it? Well, there are two reasons for it, I think. Uh, one of them is uh, these things are very partisan, and the liberals have been very effective in the Congress in fighting people they don't like, Robert Bork, for example. <coughs> and they've got the media to help them. But then secondly, the intellectually, uh, modern liberalism that gives rise to this idea of the changing, breathing, living constitution that's the words mean what they mean today and not what they used to mean. That's the whole academic world is going, has gone that way, has gone that way in every field. And so they've got the wind at their backs. And that means if you want somebody who won't do that, you need somebody who's got an explicit and intelligent record that they won't do that. And they haven't always picked that kind. If you pick just for competence, well, what, what, what judges competence? The great law schools and the bar associations. But what are their views? So you have to find highly competent people, distinguished in the field, who also have a coherent intellectual record. And that's not hard, that's not easy to find, but there are some. What kind of education should a judge have? And obviously, you should have a legal education. But before that, so if a kid here at Hillsdale College comes up to you and says, President Arndt, I think I'd like to go into the law. Maybe I'd like to become a judge. What do you say to this 
young person in terms of uh, courses to take, maybe a major to choose? Uh, what, what advice do you have for, 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 for someone thinking that way? I, I think of a distinguished instance when I actually gave that advice, a young man named Paul Ray, R-A-Y, who later became a clerk for Alita on the Supreme Court, uh, graduated near the top of his class at Harvard Law, very smart kid, was an English major here. Well, first of all, that's great preparation. But he comes up to me and he announces that he, on a lark, took the LSAT and make a, made a whacking big old score. And he wondered what advice I had for him. He said he's thinking of going to Duke, and I said, no, you're not. And he said, why not? And I said, well, you're going to go to one of the top five. Duke's great. I don't mind Duke. I don't mean to talk against Duke. But law school is a prestige deal. If you can get in the top five, go. And he said, okay, I'll apply. And I said, no, you're going to go, I'm telling you. And then he said, what else should I do? And I said, Paul, what do we mean by the expression law? Walking down the sidewalk. And he thinks a minute, he says, you know, I have to think about that. And I said, a lot. Also, where does law arise? What human capacity gives rise to it? What is the human being? Those are all described in, for example, my favorite philosopher, Aristotle, right? He lays all that out. Because we are human, we can talk, and we have a moral sense because we can talk, and that gives rise to the cooperation that is law, that is a moral thing. And so I told Paul Ray, sharpen up on that stuff, right? And then you'll come to understand about consent of the governed, which is the bulwark of the Constitution. You mentioned a term a moment ago, the living Constitution, uh, this doctrine or this idea that, 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 that a lot of liberals have when they approach the Constitution. Where does it come from? And is it, in fact, the wrong term? because they want to ignore the Constitution so many cases. In fact, they want to make it dead so mm -hmm. that they can interpret it as they please. It seems to me conservatives should be speaking about the living Constitution. Yeah. We believe that it's alive and breathes. They've stolen that, 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 that term. It's very useful to them. Yeah, that's a good, good point you make. One of my great teachers, uh, the late Harry Jaffa, I once wrote in a paper that the Constitution was a monument to freedom. I was a kid back then. And he wrote in, in front of the word monument, living, <laughs> living monument. Um, yeah, well, where does it come from? It's not too hard to state. Uh, the philosophic doctrine that reigns supreme today in its various many complex forms is that we are creatures of our time and circumstances. And we're shaped by those. And our period in history and our life experiences form our consciousness. And that means the world of 1787-89 is gone, and we have a new world now. And so the words themselves mean something different than they used to mean, and also we can't really understand what they used to mean. In that sense, then, when a judge sits down to read the document, he reads it in light of his own experiences and today, and he can't really know, and it would be wrong if he tried to know, about the founders. And that is accurate. The, the, Contemporary scholars, legal scholars, are, are correct when they say that is a radically different understanding than the one behind the Constitution. And if that understanding is correct, then we would need to pass a new Constitution for every generation or else do what we do, which is let the judges make up what it means, which is what they do.
We just had a presidential election, so we're all thinking a little bit about the Electoral College and what is it and what is this peculiar way of electing a president that we have in this country. And it's a little more charged this time because one candidate uh, has a clear majority in the Electoral College. The other candidate appears to have won the popular vote. And so there are some conversations about what does this mean and is this right, is this wrong, and, and so forth. And you, you, had a, you had a piece in the Wall Street Journal explaining the purpose of the Electoral College and so on and so forth. So for, for, for the benefit of our audience, uh, everybody should go read it, but for the benefit of those who didn't, uh, why do we have an Electoral College and what is its purpose today in the 21st century? Well, it was, it was designed for two main purposes and one of them it serves today. The two main purposes were to add an additional element of deliberation to the process of picking the president. They would have these electors, they would be distinguished people, they would be forbidden to vote, they each had to vote for two candidates, one had to be not from your state. Encourage them to think broadly, and yet they were appointed by the state legislature by whatever process they wanted, which could mean voted on, so they were representative. And th that was the, the first idea. That never really functioned very well. So instead what it does is it requires that the, and this was also a very high intention, that the vote electing the president should be divided up by state in the same way the Constitution was ratified, in the same way the Senate and the House of Representatives is elected, the Senate specifically representing states. Because their idea, and remember the idea that they had was, uh, the problem they had is the same one we have today, but it was more radically apparent then. They intended to settle this whole continent, and they intended to move free government right across it. And that's what they did. It's amazing what they did. Uh, California, you know, what, what the last state, Hawaii and Alaska, they have the same standing under the Constitution as Massachusetts and Virginia which were centers of the revolution, right? So they wanted to spread authority across geography as well as represent all the people. The Electoral College accomplishes those two things. And there are, there have been five times now, a difference between who won the popular vote and who won the electoral vote. Trump is the fifth. But it's also true, those differences have never been very wide. And yet, on the other hand, the geographic difference that elected Trump and has been characteristic of presidential votes for 30 or 40 years now is huge. Because if you look at a map of America, tinted red and blue for Republican and Democrat, the map is overwhelmingly red. And so just as it would be very bad, and it's never happened, if 20% of the people overcame 80% of the people to elect a president, that would be bad. It would also be bad if a president were elected with the votes of just 10 big cities. That would be bad. And we have avoided both these ills through the Electoral College. Let me bring this back to the Supreme Court now. There's a law professor at Hofstra University <laughs> called Leon Friedman who made the argument in the Huffington Post that the Electoral College is unconstitutional. So the obvious, the obvious uh, objection is, well, it's in the Constitution. But he says it violates the Equal Protection Clause. Is this idea as crazy as it sounds on the surface? And number two, is the threat, the political threat to the Electoral College today real? 
Yeah, I think it's real. And the reason is this drumbeat of uh, anti-constitutionalism that dominates the academic world is bound to have its echoes in public opinion. Although the Electoral College is very hard to change, the Constitution is hard to change. Um, is it as crazy? Well, yes, it's as crazy as that. And in addition, it's more crazy than that. Because it's as crazy as that, because it's right there. How can it be against the Constitution? But, and, and remember, the same argument applies to the Senate of the United States, right? Because the Senate senators represent states, and some states have more people than others, right? So you'd have to get rid of one of the popularly elected branches, right? That, that would have to go. But the reason it's still more crazy is because the Constitution wishes to perpetuate a Republican form of government, which they mean a government drawing all its authority from the great body of the people. And so all of the devices in the Constitution, and they're the hallmark of the Constitution, we don't just meet every four years and elect the whole government. We never do that, never have done that, right? You elect the president every four years, you elect the senators every six years in staggered terms, you elect the Congress every two years, the judges are appointed for life in the federal government. But then also power is divided down among the states and they are elected at different times. And the purpose of all of that is to spread our decision making across time and in the case of the Electoral College, across space. And that makes it more deliberate. And so then our better selves, writes Madison, it is our reason alone that must be placed in control of the government. Our passions must be controlled by it, he says. And everybody watching this, you should just ask yourself the question, do you always make high-quality decisions? Or do you sometimes, especially as you become more mature, remind yourself, I shouldn't decide this right now. I should let a few hours pass and think about it or sleep on it overnight. You ever get in an argument with somebody you love? and say something you regret. And if you do that, do you ever develop the idea that it'd be a great idea to put that argument on hold for a few minutes or a few hours or overnight, and then tomorrow I'll talk about it again when nobody's angry, right? It's human. And so the body politic is arranged the same way, according to all of those great precepts your mother always tell, told you, don't be a hothead, right? That's what the Constitution does. And what this man wants to do is make all that illegal, never mind that he's just one guy reading a document that is the only law ever passed by all the people of the United States. Conservatives respect tradition in all kinds of spheres. In the legal arena, that usually means respect for precedent. But sometimes precedent can come into conflict with the original meaning of the Constitution, or at least that can be a perception. Uh, the people have. How should conservative jurists balance precedent against the original meaning of the Constitution? Well, uh, law, precedent, the, the importance of precedent comes from the fact that the law has to have some fe features to be the law. It has to be simple, understandable, and not very changeable. It's got to persist over time. So, of course, the court should have a bias in favor of keeping with what it's already said. 
Now, having said that, however, the authoritative thing is not what the court says about the Constitution. The Constitution is a written document. One can read it, right? And so the 13th Amendment says no slavery. Uh, I argue that it was the purpose of the founders at the time of the Constitution to get rid of slavery as soon as possible, and a lot of it was done soon, more than half the Union. Well, never mind about that argument. But now we have the 13th Amendment. Let's say that we decide over the course of time that now we understand genetics so very well. You know, we do understand them pretty well now. And let's say we settle on the idea that some people inherit more smarts than other people. You know, there's evidence about that. Whatever that evidence is, I regard that stuff as odious, by the way. But, and, and one of the reasons I regard it as odious is even if all that stuff is true, whatever that stuff says, it doesn't tell you anything about any particular person. And everything that can talk is a human being and has its rights. But let's say we fall more deeply under the influence of this genetic idea. And let's say we start retooling people in order to equip them for public service and breed them to be smarter and make them into a class to rule all of us. I did just finish reading in class Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, which predicts that very thing, right? Well, the 13th Amendment says that in the United States of America, we cannot breed a bunch of people to servitude. Now, are we going to empower the judges in light of the new evidence to get rid of that amendment? So wouldn't it be handy for us to have some, what they're called, is what are they, the lowest ones, gammas, I think, in Brave New World? A gamma class. And we'd even, as they do in Brave New World, make them shorter so we could recognize them, right? Because it's hard just to look at somebody and tell if they're dumb or not. But if you breed all them to be smarter, smarter, shorter, then you know they're dumb too. And then they got to open the door for you and do your clothes and stuff, right? Wouldn't that be handy? That's where that stuff goes, right? Either there is such a thing as a human being, and they may not be governed rightly except with their consent, or else everything is possible. Those are the two things. That's what the founders of the country thought. And I think the danger of the loss of liberty by this professor and all that stuff, I think it's acute now, getting worse. In the first week of this course, you said that the founding era was partisan like crazy. And we often hear today that our politics are more polarized than ever before, at least more polarized than ever in our lifetimes. How does the current partisanship compare with the partisanship of the founding era, and what lessons should we draw from that as we think about things like confirming Supreme Court justices? Yeah, well, that's uh, so. First of all, it, it just remember the importance of the Constitution because what it does is manage all that. But yeah, the founding era. I mean, uh, Thomas Jefferson put a uh, Rick Brookheiser, a colleague of yours at National Review, writes about James Callender, right? Who was a journalist. He was a really mean journalist, right? And uh, he was on the payroll, Thomas Jefferson's payroll for a while, to write bad stuff about Alexander Hamilton. And what kept a cap on it while it was alive was George Washington, who had such distinction that nobody could fight in front of him. Dad was around, right? But then when 
when he retired, it immediately bust out into two political parties. And one of the things that divided them was the Alien and Sedition Act when they were going to arrest people for what they said and put them in the pokey, right? And Hamilton was against that, and John Adams signed the bill, which destroyed the Federalist Party, right? So those were very serious fights. But just think back earlier, because what about the Loyalists? A lot of them had to leave the country, or did leave anyway. Large percentages of the population, maybe 15% or 20%, something like that. It's not really known. So yeah, it was fierce. Now, if you have a constitution and everybody respects that, then these quarrels like the one we're having today can unfold in a constitutional way. And I'll go back to the Electoral College. It just means, like, California is talking about, California is not saying anything. People in California, movements in California of the left, are putting together secession petitions, right? Well, if you just had a pure popular vote, the people in California wouldn't have any reason to care what the people in Kansas think. But as long as we keep the Constitution and we all stay in it, and we keep the Electoral College, then Kansas and California are going to have profound reasons to talk to each other. And talking in politics is way better than fighting. Last question, we're running out of time. As, as we move into 2017 and we have a, a, a Republican majority in Congress and President Trump in the White House, should members of the Senate do away with the filibuster, the 60-vote supermajority that they require for so much action, particularly in the area of judicial appointments. Yeah, well, I personally think so. But first, uh, identify what it is, right? It's an old custom. And it has been waived in the past, including in the recent past. It is an old custom. It goes back into the 19th century. Uh, and so you shouldn't change it lightly. But, you know, and, and so the, the arguments, and see, remember, they're not constitutional arguments. The Constitution didn't say anything about this, right? But the arguments kind of work this way. If you get rid of the filibuster, then the majority is actually responsible for what it does. And, and if you keep it, then the minority is obstructing them. And it, it does operate, whether it's net a benefit or not, I personally think not. I would get rid of it. But, but uh, there are people who say that keeping it it's like what I said before about the Constitution. It means they've got to talk to each other. And the absolute majority can't just overrun the minority in the Senate. And the Senate is a very gentlemanly place, even still today. So I'm on the side of getting rid of it, but uh, we'll see what they do. Huh? President Earn, thank you very much. Thank you. This concludes Week 10 of Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court and concludes the whole course, in fact. If you want to learn more about our other courses online, come to our website at online.hillsdale.edu.